Lutherans in the UK, Living Grace. This podcast is a joint venture of the Council of Lutheran Churches in Great Britain. In this episode, we highlight our responsibility as people of faith in the midst of a climate crisis. We'll examine perspectives from around the CLC and consider what we can do both as individuals and as active members of our communities. And as the holidays approach, we stop into one of the many Christmas markets which our member churches host each year at this time. But first, our General Secretary, Anna Kraus, offers a festive challenge with this episode's fun fact. While many people in 20th century post-war Germany were able to look forward to a few days off over the Christmas period, some members of the workforce had to prepare to tackle a phenomenon known as the Gänsespitze, or in English, the peak of geese. This was a phenomenon that only occurred on the morning of 25th December, every single year, for many years. Can you imagine what the peak of geese is referring to? You'll hear the answer at the end of this podcast. Now we join student chaplaincy intern Anna Vickery as she brings the sights, sounds and taste of the Finnish Christmas market to life. We're here at the Finnish Christmas market at the Finnish church in Rotherhith and the Christmas spirit is really present in here. There's a lot of Finnish candies and chocolates and Christmas gifts everywhere and people enjoying their time and also the choir Merenkurkut is singing some Finnish Christmas carols. The atmosphere is such a wonderful and we have one of the social welfare workers of the church Sala in here and I'm going to ask her how she would describe the atmosphere in here. Well, I have to say this is like my favorite thing that always happens like before Christmas. So um, there are people coming from all over London, like Finnish people, but also like Londoners who have some connection to Finnish culture. And you can just sense how the how they are so happy to actually like after the pandemic to be here and to have like to see actually familiar faces. Um, so I think there's like a social element to this. Um, people see um, maybe friends and uh, our volunteers. Uh, I know that one of the volunteers um, has lived here for 30 years and maybe she met like some people 30 years ago. And now, while she's volunteering here at the supermarket, she sees those same people, like she hadn't hasn't seen them for 30 years, and they just pop up here because this connects um, Finnish people, but also like um, other people here. And the atmosphere, I would say, it's it's lovely and wonderful. That's amazing. Oh, it's it's so lovely here, and so many beautiful things everywhere. Christmas lights and the lovely smells of of food and some cinnamon buns and clergy of course and it's it's such a wonderful wonderful atmosphere wonderful place to be so greetings from the Finnish Christmas market In the book of Genesis, God commands humans to replenish the earth 
and be good managers of it. Clearly, our performance on this charge has fallen far short of our Creator's mandate. But is it too late? I spoke with one of our younger members who is allowing faith to guide his career training with a vision toward making the world more sustainable and more just. My name is Therese. I study civil engineering. A lot of the focus of the degree is about sustainability because buildings account for about 35 to 40% of the world's carbon emissions. A lot of the focus in academia anyway is on teaching us how to make buildings more sustainable. And then sort of by extension, I've uh, done my best to, to use that outside of my degree as well. So there are kind of very, very strong links between the climate and inequality. A lot of the buildings anyway, which are most responsible for pollution or bad air quality, also most responsible for, say, displacement or increasing rents or uh, people losing their home and people living in temporary accommodation. So you kind of see these parallels. And so as a result, I've tried to get involved as much as I can. I help residents on an estate in London called the Central Head Estate, an estate facing demolition doing my best to campaign about um, the importance of preserving existing buildings and the risk associated with demolishing them, namely people losing their houses and them not getting replaced with houses of the same rent. And then I'm also involved in um, a campaign called Fight the Tower in, in Brixton, in South London. A landlord and a DJ <laughs> from Texas is building a 20-story office tower in Brixton. And I think a lot of the campaign is about, well, highlighting that there's a risk of kind of heavy, heavy, heavy inflation in the area, um, increases of rent, increases of property prices and increases of cost of living as a result of having an enormous influx of wealthier communities. And yeah, just finding ways to mitigate that really and protecting the community as much as possible from being priced out anyway. So based on your assessment of the building, uh, the proposed building, have you found that it doesn't really meet adequate sustainability requirements? Well, yes and no. I think that's kind of my takeaway from COP26 as well, is that we're very good at making commitments, which actually don't really irk anyone, where I think we'll say, okay, let's make these environmental laws, but the laws aren't really that strict. So it, it ends up, you end up getting the cachet of someone that's that cares about the environment without really taking, I guess, concrete action. So a lot of the carbon footprint of a building is actually building the building. Well, it is also the solar panels and the ventilation and the heating and the cooling. All of that's obviously, it predominates, but the first footprint is the construction. So like making concrete, making cement, all of those things are really carbon intensive. And this is not something that the industry was actually necessarily cared about for a very long time. And now the industry cares about it, but in the London plan, which kind of dictates like housing policy in London, the plan says, oh yeah, you need to calculate this but there's actually no benchmark against which to compare it to. All the developer has to do is, is show how, how much the carbon footprint is for the construction of the building. That's called embodied carbon, by the way. So, so they just have to show what the embodied carbon footprint of a building is. They don't have anything to compare it to. So it could be high or low. It doesn't really matter to them because they've done it. And I think that's kind of where I, I almost wish things were a lot more stringent. But what I did find, which was useful for us, is that they didn't actually do that carbon assessment. It's just typical with skyscrapers where if you have too many windows in your building, your heating bill is going to be enormous. Also, the higher the building is, the disproportionately more costly it is to heat for the environment because the higher you go, the colder it is, and the higher the wind speeds as well. All of the higher floors need enormous amounts of heating compared to the low sections of the building. And so that 
goes into your carbon footprint. So if you were to divide the carbon footprint of a building, it would be one third of it would be the construction phase. So the making of the cement and the concrete and two thirds would be the heating and the cooling and the ventilation. Also, what was quite interesting as well is that going back to the idea of people not being stringent enough, they wrote a list of policies that they could include in the building to make it more sustainable, like solar panels and heat pumps and all of these great policies. And then afterwards, they tell you all of the reasons why they can't actually put them in the building. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> so I don't know, typically it was like, oh, well, we can't have solar panels on the roof because we want like a skylight. It's, I think it's very easy to give other people the impression that you care about the environment without actually caring about it. I guess what surprises me, what, what you're saying is I never really thought through the fact that demolition takes a big toll on the environment. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much the demolishing itself. It's more so the fact that constructing the building that you demolished was so carbon intensive. So why would you waste all of that? You know, it's actually saying, well, this building counts for so much carbon that you throw away by demolishing, you know. And so the question becomes, well, did you actually really need to waste that much carbon? Because mm -hmm. then obviously the the natural consequence of demolition is redevelopment. So you're wasting a lot of carbon and then you're adding more carbon because you thought, well, I don't, I don't like this building. It's out of fashion. It's not my, my style. So let me just demolish it. But yeah, it, it comes at an enormous carbon cost to the environment and a very unnecessary one, to be honest. There are very few instances where demolition is acceptable in the sense that, especially in a big city like London, there's such a land grab that any family that lives in social housing if they decided that their house is going to get demolished, even if they get promised to be rehoused, that's still quite unlikely because it's always going to be your word against a developer. And in that instance, you're quite likely to be not rehoused. And that's also got, it's also got racial dynamics to it, where a lot of people in social housing are disproportionately people of color. Yeah, so the environmental crisis and I guess the social crisis are very much go hand in hand. And, and so I guess a lot of my work goes to trying to do both at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it kind of surprises me, but it doesn't to hear mm -hmm. the interrelatedness of those two issues. It makes sense, mm -hmm. actually, the way that you explain it. So what was your experience of being at COP26? Like, in what capacity were you there and what were your general impressions? We were all Lutherans, and that was great. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. I got the sense of this kind of big dichotomy between the politicians at COP26 and the activists at COP26, and also the dichotomy between the developing and the developed world. And the politicians and the developed countries were a lot more upbeat about the climate crisis and the ability to beat it. And then the um, developing countries and the activists were kind of a lot more pessimistic about our chances. The Prime Minister of Barbados, uh, Mia Motley, she was saying that, she said it very tongue-in-cheek, but she was saying, well, if all of you developed countries don't like immigration, imagine what will happen if you don't take action on the climate crisis. Basically referring to droughts and coastal erosion and how that creates a lot of migration and how wealthier countries are quite, well, <laughs> very resistant to migration from the developing world. From your faith perspective, and when you think about what sort of things you could do and, you know, differences that you could make in the future, how do you synthesize all of that? For me, um, a lot of it is about people. And that was something that I noticed at COP26 as well, is that I think saying, well, we can't transition out of a low carbon economy too fast because that all affects people who are working class first, which I disagreed with. And I think that points to kind of broader truth, which is 
people who are disadvantaged are the last ones to be able to buy out of their environment. And I almost got the sense that we were acting like the climate crisis doesn't affect the most vulnerable communities when it does. You have droughts, which affects obviously the most vulnerable communities, and you have erosion, which the most vulnerable communities can't really escape because they can't just buy (laughs) houses elsewhere easily. And you have migration caused by the climate crisis. So so from my perspective, and in terms of my faith, I think if I was able to give a speech at COP26 anyway, I would just emphasize the fact that acting on the climate crisis is first about protecting the most vulnerable people. And that's not something we can get away from. What gives you hope? What responsibility do we have as people of faith? Uh, Our responsibility is to know that just because it doesn't necessarily affect us personally, it affects uh, people around us, habitats around us, and people in habitats in the future, and kind of being able to lose that individualism. And especially us living in the UK, if you are live relatively comfortably and live in a wealthy country, it's not necessarily going to be about you. And being able to see that is really, really, really important. If I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't have been able to, I feel like I just wouldn't have cared as much. It very much feels like my faith makes it a lot more natural to care. Where for me, it's obvious that if there are people who are more vulnerable, then (laughs) we should make sure they're all right and try to help as much as possible. And that's really true for the climate crisis. Lutherans in the UK, living grace. Siracy Domingos is in his final year of a civil engineering degree at the University of Bath. He's a member of St Anne's Lutheran Church in London and served as a youth representative for the Lutheran Church in Great Britain at COP26. You may not be an engineer, but you can still be part of the climate solution. Salla Kordiniemi seeks the advice of management consultant and artist Dr Duli Bell, a UK Lutheran who hails from Finland and is passionate about sustainability. So Tuli, today we are talking about um, sustainability, about environment. But before that, um, could you tell us who you are and what do you do for a living? Consultant seems like an interesting thing, but what does it actually mean? So what I do is uh, quite a few things, actually. So I'm a management consultant and do consulting around uh, businesses, processes and how they can work together and uh, work better, basically more efficiently and in a in a more fun and productive way. My consultancy is a sustainability pre-sales consultancy. So everything that I do, I always bring the sustainability aspect. And you said that sustainability is like really important in, in everything you do. Could you tell how does it actually work in, in your work environment or how does it um, how do you implement it in your work? So sustainability is a value that a lot of organizations will say that sustainability is one of our values and we really want to work in sustainable ways. However, it can feel quite difficult to actually take the actions and we're living currently in the decade of action. It's in the hashtag decade of action by the UN kind of um, their initiative. And what I um, do with organizations is really inspire them to look at, so what does sustainability mean? And what are they sustainability strategies and plans and how can they implement that? Everything that we kind of do is underpinned by sustainability. So 
you know, whether that's sending for your emails, digital waste is a huge thing. By the way, yeah, I think it's something that organizations, once they're kind of tackled with physical waste, things like Mm -hmm. paper and going paperless, all sorts of things, will start to understand how big an issue digital waste is. So even things like not sending an email, if you really don't have to, or not saving another copy of a file, is really important. Looking at where you store your data. For example, so I use Google Cloud for a lot of my databases. They run their data centers on renewable energy. I think that's what they do. So all businesses do purchase, even if they're very small, um, they do make purchases. So all the purchases that you do make, if you can make sure that those are sustainable purchases or buy from local, other kind of local suppliers is really important as well. And also when you create something, whether that's physical or virtual, think about the user, how they use that material or use items that you produce and look at where does that end up in. So whether that ends up in in the bin or is it not great, or if you can prolong the use of it, that's really good. Or then if they can then gift it onwards. So for example, if it's a book, if you can then gift it onwards when you no longer need it, that's really good. That's amazing. So basically, I have to say in in the first part of your explaining what you do, I I kind of zoned out because I wasn't sure what you were talking about. But when you brought these great examples, I could actually dig deeper into, into what you're doing. How does your faith come into the picture? So how is sustainability and your faith? What is the connection between them? For me, nature is really important in I guess as a Lutheran and growing up in Finland, uh, forest and nature has always been where I feel God very close to me. And so for me already, nature has a very, a very huge value, not only as a resource, as it is for pretty much all of us, but also a connection to God. And so it's um, being sustainable and having sustainable values, people will have very different reasons for doing that it might be because they want to give a better world for the children or it might be that they feel that we have done enough bad things as to humanity to make it good and make it right or it could be so many other things it could be that you feel that socially you're not supported or you feel that your community is not supported and again community is a huge part of sustainability for me really it's important that we can be part of nature and be be part of doing good with nature and that's really interlinked um, with my with my personal faith what is your vision or what is your dream about the environment what can we do and uh, can we do something about it we should all do what we can and we should all concentrate on problems and solving the problems that we can solve and take the actions that we can take. Because if we try and tackle, or if we worry about things that we can't actually do anything about, then it's really just worrying without doing anything. And that can bring that anxiety about climate change, about environment. If we concentrate on things which we're passionate about, something that we can do, then I think that's really important. And then take that action. And sometimes it's something that we have to talk about within families. So if as a family, we want to start recycling certain things like, so where I live, it's untrivial to, to recycle plastic bags, for example, because you have to take them to a shop. You first have to like hoard them for a long time and then uh, make sure that they've got the right numbers on them and all sorts of things. But 
necessarily decision I'm kind of doing on behalf of the family but and lots of other things as well but I think again if you want to change something I think you want to decide and realize what you can do um, and then take action and then there's lots of different websites about uh, giving you inspiration and when things do start opening up properly then you can have those community events as well and talk with with other people in the community that's amazing Thank you so much, Tuli, for, for sitting with me via Zoom <laughs> and, um, and talking about these topics. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Reverend Sarah Farrow shares a reflection about our relationship with the earth, which is inextricably tied to our relationship with other people. Our connection with the environment is undeniable. We rely on it for shelter, food, for almost every aspect of our daily lives. And the environment relies on us to treat it with care and respect so that it may continue to flourish in order for others to flourish. It is a relationship like many others in our life. And now that relationship, that connection, is strained as climate change worsens, as we see the effects our actions have on the environment and on people around the world. Climate justice is now seen as the priority in order for other injustices to be addressed, for it is all connected. We are all connected. The command to love your neighbor has been at the core of my understanding of the need to fight for climate justice. And this is in two ways. Those who are impacted the most by climate change are often those living in the poorest countries with limited access to resources. Flooding, drought, rising sea levels, loss of crops and livestock are taking away people's homes, their livelihoods, their food, their lives. My actions, and at times my inaction, are destructive to their flourishing. That call to love my neighbor requires me to listen more and act with others in mind. So many are suffering from the effects of climate change. As God's people called to love and care for one another, we take responsibility for our actions and their effect on others. We condemn the exploitation of others, and in this we include all of creation. And this brings me to my second point, that there is another side of understanding what it means to love your neighbor. In loving our neighbor, is not all of creation included in that understanding of who our neighbor is. If we see our neighbor being that which was created by God, then we have a responsibility to love our neighbor, to love and care for our fellow creatures and creations of God. To damage God's gift of creation damages that relationship with the Creator. We are connected through and with all of God's creation. Now we know what we must do. As the climate activist Greta Thunberg said, 
The climate crisis has already been solved. We already have all the facts and solutions. All we have to do is wake up and change. We are called to work together, support one another, and raise our voice on behalf of those whose voices are not being heard. We live in a life of faith built on the resurrection, of life in the face of death, of hope in the face of despair, of change and challenge in the face of status quo. As we begin each day in this Advent time and the coming new year, May we hold the love of our neighbor in our prayers, our thoughts, and most decisively in our actions as we work together towards climate justice. Sarah serves as Vice Dean and Chaplain at King's College London to the St. Thomas's and Waterloo campuses. St. Mary's German Lutheran Church in Sandwich Street has been experiencing months of renovation, but are now on the verge of reopening. Anna Kraus brings an update from Pastor Bernd Ropp as they met on the construction site to discuss the effect the displacement has had on the congregation and their plans for the future. Lutherans in the UK live in grace. Bernd, how long has this church been under construction now and are you happy with the process? I'm very happy with the process, yes, and uh, it's been a really, really long time. So I think the last service in here was in March 2020, so one and a, over one and a half years, which is partly due to, to the renovation work, but um, even more so to, to the pandemic. Um, and we, we want to make, wanted to make sure that people are safe, and so we kind of switched to Zoom and um, and in the meantime, we've had at least two renovation periods, and the last one now, uh, which is going to end, is the bigger one, the biggest one, and we are very pleased with the, how far they, they, they have come and, and the quality of the work, and it's, it's really great. When you started this whole process of rethinking this space, did you also think about energy efficiency and maybe lower carbon footprint? To be really honest, not really, um, because we are... Uh, in the basement of, of a huge building, and the huge difference is is upstairs. It's not in the basement in here. So what we've done is that we've changed the, the lighting to, to LED, for example, and we've installed new doors, which might help us to, to reduce uh, the energy costs. But you can't really call it energy efficient or, or whatever. So it's, it's, it's making a few changes. Yes, that's right. Um, but it comes down to, um, I think, to, to the congregation and, and how they will run the whole place. I think it's, it's, that's the decision we, we have to make if we, if we really go f- kind of green and, and uh, ecological and, and uh, properly resourced things we, we are going to consume here. I think that's, that's going to make a difference as well. Yeah. You've given me a kind of sneak peek into the building and uh, I am wondering what your one or two favorite features, new features of this space are? Well, there are a lot of them, and you, you said I, I should reduce myself to three. <laughs> I, could, I could add even more, but uh, we're standing in the church now, and uh, I particularly like the lighting, uh, which is 
absolutely great. So um, because we are in the basement, um, of a, we, you have to have this this feeling that that you're still. Um, that you're not in the basement, actually, <laughs> and and light makes makes the difference to that. And what I particularly like is the lighting. What I like as well is the new opening to the courtyard, and the courtyard is the centerpiece of the whole building. And uh, we made sure that that you can access the courtyard from every part of the building, which is absolutely great. Um, so uh, you can call it an outside church as well. So that, that's really nice. I can only say, come and come and see for yourself. Great. What are your plans once you have reopened? It is, was, and will still be the, the home of the German Lutheran St. Mary's Church, of course, and that's, that's one of the main focuses. But from the outset, um, interestingly, the architect asks us, what do you want to achieve? So what, what are your aims? What are your plans for the future? And we coined the phrase of, we would like to be a Lutheran hub. So um, we are right in the middle of the city centre of London, five minutes from King's Cross. Uh, so it's easy, accessible, and we want to make this an open space for student chaplaincy, for example, um, for choirs coming in, having their rehearsals here. We already have one. Uh, the Icelandic choir is, is coming in. We have a recorders group coming in um, on a regular basis. So we could think of charities uh, looking for a space um, to do their work. So that's, these are things that I'm hoping are going to develop in the next couple of months, um, and especially this focus on, on Lutheran groups. I would really love to see this place thriving and, and being a, a home not only for, for us as the German church, but for the wider Lutheran community. That's, that would be really great. Brilliant. Thank you, Reverend Bernd, for giving us this insight into your plans. And we're looking forward to seeing the space once it's done and inhabiting it with you. And now, the answer to our festive challenge fun fact. The phenomenon called a peak of geese is related to Christmas lunch in Germany, but maybe not in the way you first imagined. Because many people were able to sit down for Christmas lunch around the same time across Germany. All the delicious Christmas roasts, often a goose, had to be put into the oven around the same time as well. This led to a sudden surge in energy demand around 10 o'clock on Christmas morning and ended in an equally sudden decrease of energy demand a few hours later. For energy providers, this peak of geese, caused a lot of logistical problems and meant that workers in this industry had to work extra shifts over Christmas. Lutherans in the UK, Living Grace, is produced and presented by Salla Kordeniemi, Anna Kraus, Wendy Scherer, Meilis Süld and Anna Vigari. Thank you for listening and until next time, May God's peace bless you in the new year. Lutherans in the UK. Living Grace.